You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Well, the back half of this week has been, you know, awful, just world-wise. So let's just get into the stuff, shall we? I haven't come up with a new name for the movie section yet. It's not Two Sentence Movie Reviews, because they're never two sentences. So how about we just do some movie reviews? First was Dog. I saw Dog, starring Channing Tatum. It's that movie where he's got the dog. And it's not bad. It's like a family movie with like, I guess, preteens was the age they were aiming for. Like, it's definitely not for under eights. And it's definitely not for like, it's a little too young for teenagers, but it's cute. It's a cute little movie. The dog's cute. It's fine. Then I checked into Hollywood to attend a screening of an experimental film called Star at the Academy Museum. And the film's not called star like the word but rather the symbol emoji whatever the kids are calling it these days of a star it was made by johan lerf who is an austrian filmmaker and this dude took every image of the night sky or space and all of cinema that he could find and put them all in chronological order to show the evolution of the night sky in film you never see anything in this film other than the night sky if you ever get a chance to see it it's really cool but if you get motion sickness go in the back. I'm a big film nerd, so I was obsessed with this. I thought it was really cool. A very, you know, very different way to look at film history. Um, but you know, don't take a grandma who watches the Hallmark movies. This ain't the same for her. Or your like boyfriend who's a plumber. This this isn't probably his thing unless he's a film buff. This is a film nerd thing through and through. I thought it was fascinating. I hell dug it. So yeah, that's star. So as I mentioned last week, I toiled over what I wanted this to this topic this week to be. Um, was I going to do a single person? Was I going to try to do something else? And I kind of landed on not talking about a single person, but rather a genre of film. We haven't really done that yet. And I thought, hey, let's give it a shot. I mentioned this genre briefly, I think, in my second episode and Brief History of Film. Um, but it's something I really don't know I didn't really know much about until this week I've come across it I was familiar with like references to it and like parodies of it but I realized I didn't really know that much about the nitty-gritty so why don't we change that together as I bring you up to speed on my first deep introduction to this genre this week, we're covering the history of black exploitation films, also known as urban films, a genre of movies produced to entertain black audiences when, even in a time of great change in mainstream cinema, the films coming out of Hollywood were widely ignoring African Americans. These films were made cheaply and quickly and for a brief moment tackled social issues on screen in a way that had never been seen before. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Thank you. 
exploitation films would grow out of the race film, which, as we all remember from three weeks ago, was a genre that started when independent filmmaker Oscar Michaud put down his pen and picked up a film camera to combat the portrayal of black people in American cinema. Race films started in 1915 and carried on into the 1950s, ending with the film Care of Gold in 1956. Despite their content, race films were primarily financed by white-owned companies whom recognized the low-cost, high-reward nature of these films. African-American people wanted to see African-American characters. It's not rocket science. We all like seeing versions of ourselves reflected back at us on a screen. They just capitalized on something we all know. They were, you know, capitalism. Some Black-owned studios did exist, like the Lincoln Motion Picture Company, who had tried to adapt Oscar Michaud's The Homesetter, and of course, later Michaud would have his own production company, but by and large, primarily financed by white-owned companies. Thematically, race films dealt primarily with poor black people whom had moved to the north out of the south. These films typically celebrated middle-class urban values like education and an entrepreneurial mindset. The goal of these characters was to rise up in society, and any character whom avoided the virtues of industriousness or education likely met a nefarious end. Non-existent in these films were the maid and the help characters, which are pretty much the only representation of black people in Hollywood films at this time. Race films showed their audiences that more was out there waiting for them than how Hollywood saw them. Due to their content, race films in the South were only shown in black neighborhoods, and in the North where segregation was less prevalent but still around, the films would be shown either during matinee times or as midnight screenings. The decline of the race film occurred due to African-American participation in World War II and the introduction of talent like Sidney Poitier being embraced, embraced for lack of a better word, by the Hollywood system. This occurred because films about racism and segregation were becoming popular in Hollywood and you needed more than just the white actors to tell those stories. By 1956, in all, about 500 now mostly lost to time films were made. Fifteen years would pass before another major movement would occur in African-American cinema, and it would have a very different look than the race film. The year? 1971. The civil rights movement had ended about three years prior. America was waging war in Vietnam when a film called Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song was released. After years of Black audiences being frustrated by the lack of representation on film, director Melvin Van Peebles changed that with a single movie. Van Peebles had become a filmmaker at the suggestion of a passenger he'd had while working in San Francisco as a cable car grip man. He made two short films up in the city. He took them to Hollywood to find work, but was unable to do so. He ended up leaving L.A., ended up in Europe for a little bit, was writing satire in France, and made his first feature film in 1968 called The Story of a Three-Day Pass. Thinking he was a white French auteur director, the film won a prize at the San Francisco International Film Festival. A Hollywood producer took notice and hired Van Peebles to direct a film called Watermelon Man for Columbia Pictures. Oh God, the name. The film was about a white man whom wakes up one day to discover he's become a black man. 
I mean, I I didn't I couldn't bring myself to look up what this was. You know, good thing I'm not a journalist because it's bad journalistic practice not to look at something. I saw the poster and I'm like, no, I can't. I can't do that. I can't watch any of that. I won't. But that was not the <laughs> consensus back in 1968 as the film was a financial success and Columbia offered him a three picture deal. But for real, like the, the poster's got a, a, a guy like a white dude in half blackface on a, on a watermelon with an American flag draped over it. It's I, I can't. I don't want to know. But yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, Van Peebles opted to make Sweet Sweetback's badass song instead of this. In fact, Watermelon Man would be Van Peebles' only studio film in his entire career, and he worked for years. Using his own money and a $50,000 loan from Bill Cosby, Van Peebles made a film about a black male sex worker whom he played himself. If you remember from last week, a big criticism of Sidney Poitier's roles was how sanitized his characters were. They typically lacked personality flaws and sexuality. Sweetback showed a highly sexualized black man whom was also a fighter, something that shocked the censorship board at the time. So much so, in fact, that they gave the film an X rating, modern rating standards that's an NC-17. Black audiences, though, came to the film in droves despite this X rating. After seeing themselves as side characters and morally forthright for decades, they finally got to see someone who looked like them and won battles and wasn't necessarily just this super sanitized image of a black person. Sweetback was a story of a sex worker who goes on the run from the man with the help of the ghetto community and some disillusioned hell's angels after saving another man from a group of corrupt cops. That's a description from IMDb. Through his journey, he discovers the importance of the need for the black community to stick together. The film was partially marketed via its soundtrack, which featured a then-unknown band called Earth, Wind, and Fire. Made for just $500,000, Sweetback made $15 million, a shit ton of money for an independent film at this time. Now, in the early 1970s, as we've touched on briefly here over the last couple of years, the Hollywood film industry was crumbling. TV was killing them for a few different reasons. One, many Americans of the Caucasian persuasion had left the cities in favor of the burbs where there were no movie theaters. Two, Vietnam War. People were glued to the TV watching the war stuff. And three, the aging movie moguls that had started these studios during the silent era were either retiring or being squeezed out of power by a board of directors after failing to make films that made money. The fact of the matter was, the majority of people whom had remained in the city, therefore near the cinemas, were people of color who didn't really give a shit about who Steve McQueen was going up against in the most recent studio picture. But, seeing what Sweetback had done at the box office, the studios ran out to find filmmakers that could also make these cheap urban movies for them. And nobody needed fast money quite like MGM. Once one of the five biggest film studios in Hollywood, responsible for making films like Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind, the 1960s and 70s had been less kind, and after a series of hardcore flops, they needed to find a way to make money, and they needed to find it fast. They had even resorted to selling off their backlot and their iconic movie props, which that in itself wasn't even going to balance their books. Major money problems. So they threw a Hail Mary with the 1971 film, Shaft. Starring Richard Roundtree in his first major role, Shaft was about a black private eye who kicked ass and took names. 
Like Sweetback, Shaft also had an incredible score and soundtrack, which was written by a then 29-year-old Isaac Hayes, whom we all know now as Chef on South Park. The song Shaft, which would earn Hayes an Oscar, was also a hit on the radio, which allowed it to reach white audiences as well. In all, Shaft would make $12 million against a $500,000 budget. That is a, if I did my math correctly, 2,400% profit. There would be two more Shaft films, which were Shaft's Big Score in 72 and Shaft in Africa in 73. Later, of course, would come the two remake slash sequels, the first of which starred Samuel L. Jackson in 2000, and the second, which united Jackson, Roundtree, and Jesse T. Usher as Grandson Shaft, which released in 2019. So, 2,400% profit, if I did math correctly. That's That's not a bad number. It appeared to the studios that some money could be made with these movies, and many copied. At first, this allowed a new generation of black filmmakers to finally get in the door of Hollywood, while also giving independent filmmakers a better chance of getting their films both made and seen. The next major film of the exploitation genre is probably Superfly from 1972. Unlike the first two films in which the leads were clearly hero types, even if flawed, Superfly did it a little different. Their lead was a cocaine dealer whom was ironically named Priest. This is the film that gave us the famous line, stick it to the man. Like the gangster films of the 1940s, Superfly celebrated a man whom would in real life typically be considered the bad guy even though he fought against the corrupt powers that be. This film also had an iconic costume style. Even Denzel Washington said in an interview years later that upon seeing Superfly, he bought a similar jacket to the one worn by the main character. Like it was, you know, these were seeping in the pop culture. This film was so popular, in fact, it unseated The Godfather from the top spot at the box office when it released. While popular, these films angered civil rights activists due to the graphic drug content and perpetuation of black stereotypes. Some picketed the film, but the consensus was pretty overwhelmingly positive in the early days of the genre. African-American audiences would rather see a rough-around-the-edges black man fighting on his feet than Sidney Poitier in the musical Porgy and Bess on his knees. In fact, its strongest critics would give the genre its most commonly referred to name. The Beverly Hills Hollywood NAACP leader Junius Griffin combined black and exploitation to form the name black exploitation in an article being critical of the genre. He named it this because he claimed that the films under this banner were spreading stereotypes and proliferating offenses. Some of the exploitation actors in interviews have called this hypocritical as what films aren't exploitative about the topic or people they're portraying, which honestly, kind of a good point. As studios set out in droves to make these so-called black exploitation films, they had a little teen problem. Oops, we forgot to get black talent on our rosters. To combat this, studios would scout black athletes like football player Rosie Greer of the Los Angeles Rams, whom appeared extensively in TV shows and movies. The favorite one I took a peek at was this movie where he plays a convict on death row who gets a second chance at life, but the only way he gets a second chance at life is if this white rich guy's head gets transplanted on his body. But the, like I thought they were going to swap heads. They don't swap heads. They stick the white guy's head onto Rosie Greer's 
Peter's body and then they're just clearly in a big coat for the whole movie. It's so bizarre. It's called The Thing with Two Heads and it's worth looking up for the pics alone. Honestly, just looking at that pic, it gives you an idea of how cheaply these movies were made. Oh, and just because I kind of found this awesome, this huge football player was a big time needle pointer and he even published a book in 1973 called Rosie Greer's Needlepoint for Men. This dude had layers. For the actresses, you probably guessed it, they weren't looking at the athletes. And producers went anywhere and everywhere, including the Playboy Mansion and the Playboy Club. But the results were undeniable. The black talent in Hollywood had exploded. Now, if you're unfamiliar, a black exploitation film is all about the formula. First, you needed a strong leading man, occasionally a woman, whom always won the fight. Many of them were like some kind of like kung fu, karate, or the like kind of master. That was that was pretty typical. The leader, the leading individual, let's just say leading man to make it easy, had to be witty in a James Bond type of way. Those movies were crazy popular at the time. He had to be smooth with the ladies whom were plentiful in all of these movies. Many of the black exploitation films featured graphic lovemaking scenes that by modern standards could be considered softcore porn. It, it definitely toes the line. The films would also often explore the then taboo subject of interracial relationships. And the villain was almost always the man, a white fat cat the hero needed to rise up against. Black exploitation films were heavily marketed using their soundtracks, as well as high-octane radio trailers voiced by Adolf Caesar. If you've seen a trailer of a black exploitation film, the voice you're probably thinking of is Caesar's. There's an example of it at the at the break, but at the end of the episode. Also, the film had a highly stylized, super colorful film poster. By 1973, just two years after Sweet Back and Shaft, black cinema was in its first heyday. There would even be parodies of horror films in the black exploitation genre like Blackula and Blackenstein. Cleopatra Jones, starring Tamara Dobson, flipped the script and featured a strong black female lead. In the film, Dobson plays a karate-chopping government agent. This film would create a subgenre within black exploitation that saw women as the leads and included films like Coffee, Foxy Brown, and Black Belt Jones. You may be thinking, oh great, equality and a chance to see some badass women be the lead for once. No, 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 my dear listeners. Well, this was the results. This was hardly the goal of the studios. You see, the black actresses were cheaper than the male black actors and one plus one equals even cheaper movie. It didn't matter that much to the actresses, though. They had been, most of them had been busting their asses trying to break into Hollywood for years and were finally given a chance to star in a movie. Out of this subgenre came actresses like Pam Greer, whom would become one of the most recognizable figures of black cinema. Her role in Coffee became a blueprint for other strong female characters. She would also have a career resurgence in 1997's Jackie Brown, directed by Quentin Tarantino, who was a huge fan of the black exploitation genre. And when he made Jackie Brown, he put Pam Greer in it and reintroduced her to an entirely new generation of filmgoers. This genre, at the end of the day, allowed African-Americans to take a bit of their power back on the screen. After years of being shoved into the tiniest little box of cinema roles, they were on top, taking shit from no one. The movement even spread to James Bond, which saw Gloria Hendry, a very popular exploitation actress that had been discovered while working in a Playboy club, becoming a Bond girl in Live and Let Die in 1973. She was the first non-white actress to have a relationship with 
with the British spy who had a license to kill. Despite making it into the mainstream media, though, and the amount of money they were making for the studios, exploitation films continued to have lower budgets, tighter schedules, and were by and large considered the red-headed stepchildren of the industry. The studios didn't like them, but they couldn't deny that they were making money. These films were typically shot in two weeks, and actors rarely got more than one take from each angle. And rehearsing? Forget it. Many actors even had to wear their own clothes and do their own makeup. The studio heads just didn't care about the films, as they didn't care about the audiences they were for, and largely viewed and treated the films as trash. Trash I was keeping their lights on, but trash. Well, in front of the camera, the cast was led by predominantly black actors. The opposite was generally the case behind. Despite the early days when black directors and writers were hired to make the films, this was maybe the first two years, most crew members on these black exploitation films were white, including the writers and directors once the genre got popular. This, too, sparked outrage from civil rights groups whom protested this and the general quality of the films. It, they look weird, the sound's bad, the acting's not great because they didn't really have you know, time to do multiple takes. There's no rehearsing. It was just, you know, shoot from the hip filmmaking. Just go film, 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 pile a bunch of shit together. No wonder they thought they were bad. They weren't giving them the chance to make something decent. They were just making them spit something out to put in a theater. But turns out, shockingly, that method of filmmaking is not sustainable because audiences will get tired of it. When the film Three the Hard Way, starring Jim Kelly, who was a karate master, received tepid responses from audiences, the studios kind of panicked a little bit. The film, it's just, the film's quality was terrible. Jim Kelly couldn't act his way out of a paper bag. And even despite the fact that the film had a great message, audiences could not get past the way it looked. And also, people were getting tired of the urban settings of the films. So what's a film studio to do? Well... What if we set a black exploitation film somewhere else? Like, I don't know, the Wild West? The film was called Take a Hard Ride. It released in 1975 and showed black actors on the great American West. Jim Kelly also appeared in this film, but they didn't learn their lesson as he was famously not the best actor in the world. And they fixed it by just making his character mute. Done and done. From this film came a film we talked about last week, Sidney Poitier's Buck and the Preacher, which was Sidney's attempt to reconnect with the black audiences that had abandoned him when he garnered mainstream success in white Hollywood. We talked about last week, you know, he was doing the sterilized bits and they weren't here for it. His work on Buck and then as a director would, however, allow other black filmmakers through the door. Sidney, however, wasn't the biggest fan of this genre. And honestly, that kind of hurt his career. As these films continued to make money, Hollywood had no problem pretty much rehashing the same stories over and over and over, pretty much just changing the names and the faces. This was a survival mode era for most of them, and as long as they continued to make money, the black exploitation films would continue to be made. In 1973 came Black Caesar, which would become one of the last major black exploitation films. Written and directed by Larry Cohen, a white dude, and starring Fred Williamson, the film was an offshoot of the 1931 gangster film Little Caesar. The film was one of the few black exploitation films to actually do well critically and commercially instead of just the latter. 
Well, some attempts are made at making serious films within the genre, like the Sammy Davis Jr. picture, A Man Called Adam, which gave the performer a chance to break away from the Rat Pack, and also films like Nothing But a Man and Aaron Loves Angela. It was becoming abundantly clear to black audiences, whom were still the primary audiences of these pictures, that they were being offered little more than sex, drugs, and violence, with very little story to go alongside. So started the decline of the urban films. Studios were literally just throwing garbage into the theaters, believing that the black audiences would show up. That's how low their opinion uh, was of the African-American audiences. Turns out they were tired of being the garbage men. Civil rights leaders multiplied their efforts, protesting the exploitation films. The targets, mainly in their scopes, were MGM, of course. They started this trend within the studios, but also Warner Brothers and then-studio American International Pictures, which is now owned by MGM. The films of this genre had long lost their luster, and the name exploitation had never been more true. Black performers are being used as puppets for white directors and writers and for the by and large white owned studios to save their necks with little to no respect or credit being given to the artists. Gone was the political overtones from the films and all that was left was style with no substance. I did mention that at one point a football guy had a white dude's head on his shoulder, right? Like that's where they were at. All of this was hard for many of the black actors who had made careers for themselves within this genre. Rudy Ray Moore, whom is best known for his Dolomite films, viewed the protests as, quote, disgusting. Not one of these groups who were critical of the films had financed a film and therefore didn't get to have an opinion, in Moore's opinion. Moore, whom Eddie Murphy played in the biopic Dolomite Is My Name, had started his career as a stand-up comedian, eventually performing and releasing albums under the name Dolomite. With his capital from his albums, he produced the first Dolomite film in 1975, which led to several others. He was one of, not a lot, of black artists who had complete control over his films. In his 2008 obituary, the character of Dolomite was described as, quote, the ultimate ghetto hero, a bad dude profane, skilled at kung fu, dressed to kill, and hell-bent on protecting the community from evil menaces. He was a pimp with a kung fu fighting clique of prostitutes, and he was known for his sexual prowess. Sounds like a fun dude. Despite the decline of the films, the good news was that black actors by this time were finally being portrayed on the big screen and better funded films that actually showed black actors in a realistic looking society. This included the film Cooley High, which is a coming of age story of a group of students in the 1960s at an integrated high school. It showed non-black audiences universal stories with non-white actors and as a result the film became an instantaneous classic. In 1975, as the protests against the exploitation films were getting more and more prevalent, the studios decided enough was enough and pretty much just stopped making exploitation films. They weren't making a crazy amount of money anyway, and a new trend was emerging anyway. Instead of making exploitation films, the studios began looking for something with blockbuster potential, and the late 70s saw the rise of the big-budget science fiction blockbuster films. This started when Universal Pictures released Jaws in 1975, which had electrified the movie-going market. Since Hollywood is very much a monkey-see-monkey-do type place, other studios quickly set out looking for their own versions. Fox did Star Wars, Paramount did Rocky, Warner Brothers did Superman, and on and on and on and on. These films had universal appeal, drawing all creeds to the movie theaters, so naturally the studios stopped making exploitation films pretty much overnight. 
By the end of the 1970s, urban cinema had all but ceased, canceled by protesters and a new age of cinema. For the actors who had worked in these films, they found themselves out of work. The studios had used them for what they wanted them for and didn't seemed to have a use for them in the films they were making now, despite the fact that their films had kept them in business for the first part of the decade. And a lot of the roles that were being, you know, a lot of like anybody, anybody of any race could have been a Star Wars person. Like there's nothing specific like about them that, you know, that couldn't be played by a person of color. But the studios didn't feel like doing that. Many of the exploitation actors lost everything and some became addicted to alcohol and or drugs. More than 200 black exploitation films were released between 1971 to 1979, with most of them being made from 1972 to 1975. It may have seemed like the films would be lost to time in an obscure corner of film history. Not so. Enter Spike Lee. Spike Lee's 1985 film, She's Gotta Have It, ushered in a new era of black filmmaking, one that this time has not faded into obscurity. Lee portrayed a Brooklyn neighborhood as a vibrant cosmopolitan community where industrious African-Americans thrived, focused not, focusing not only on his main characters, but also on local children, residents, and the artwork out of, that, uh, out of the black community. The film had people descending into Brooklyn in droves to see the location of Lee's film. While there is still a long ways to go to equality, black actors and filmmakers in the last 40 years have managed to find mainstream success in ways that were unheard of in Oscar Michaud, Hattie McDaniel, or even most of Sidney Poitier's careers. And not just by making films that are meant for a small part of the population, but universal, international appealing films. They are no longer a member of the niche. They are now part of the mainstream. While only around for a brief period, black exploitation films continue to inspire filmmakers and musicians and the like nearly 50 years after they were made. Introducing Black culture to audiences in a time where America was still in the aftershocks of the civil rights movement. These films at their apex created some of the first mainstream Black movie stars, writers, and directors, and cultural icons that to this day still resonate with audiences and artists alike. This dude is bad, and he ain't just fly, he's super fly, yeah, super fly. When it comes to women, they come to him, but it's still not enough. He wants a big score, a million in cash, yeah, the big one. This is a chance, and I want to take it now, before I have to kill somebody. Before somebody ices me. What kind of money are we talking about? Uh, not much. I want his ass out working. Then I took all this chance for nothing. And I go back to being nothing. Work at some jive job for chump change day after day. Look, if that's all I'm supposed to do, then they're gonna have to kill me, because that ain't enough. Ain't I clean? Bad machine, super cool, super mean. Feeling good for the man, super fly. Here I stand, secret stash, heavy bread. Baddest bitches in the bed. I'm your pusher man. 
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that'd be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes if you can help out in any way. I very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check that out the link in the show notes. Next week, we're going all the way back to a time before we ever heard an actor's voice on screen. For a month, I'm calling Queens of the Silent Age. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. 